0: Let's listen keenly and observe this group, fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, a small group of meerkats gathered together in the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane, producing a podcast and a live stream for your entertainment and education. (laughs) I, of course, and Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, with me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day
1: Trevor, g'day listeners. And for those of you that are keeping count, I am still on the (laughs) dole. You're having interviews, Scott. I am having interviews, yes. I've got an interview tomorrow up in Toowoomba actually, an interview on Thursday night down at um, the Gold Coast. And then as a real outsider, I've getting interviewed via Zoom on Thursday morning for a position up in Tennant Creek. Right. Where the hell's Tennant Creek, mm. I hear you say? It's mm. 10 hours south of Darwin. So <laughs> Right. Okay. I hope they've got good internet, Scott. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: mm. We don't have Paul with us tonight. No. Um, Paul, he'll be fine. He'll be with us next week. But lurking in the background, we've got Joe, the tech guy. Joe, welcome. Good evening, all. So Joe's going to help out with tech issues in future and look after the sound and look after other things in terms of the live stream and that gives me a chance to concentrate on what we're actually talking about <laughs> and have not have to have half an eye on the tech all the time. And Joe will be responding in the chat room and stuff like that and if he thinks that we're talking complete shite about any particular issue, he'll also chime in and um, tell us where we're wrong. Um, exactly. Open yeah. invitation, Joe, to chip in where you, where you feel the, the need. So. So, dear listener, uh, tonight on the agenda, we're going to talk a little bit about Robin Risto and his uh, satanic activity. Of course, Victoria, what's going on down there with their roadmap. Um, Google and Facebook and Murdoch, um, trading off the economy for health. Is that a thing? The Catholic Church is up to mischief as always. Fiona Patton's doing good things with school chaplains. I've subscribed in my Facebook feed to Sky News. Oh, good God. Exactly. just the things I do for you, (laughs) dear listener,
1: seriously. My God, (laughs) the things I'm seeing there, I just... I thought I was a glutton for punishment where I sat down and I said, I'm going to watch this every night for a week. Mm. And by the end of that week, I was wanting to throw something at my television. Yeah. It well, was really shitty stuff. It, but it's also enlightening as to what's
0: happening. And, and you anyway, know, we'll get on to that. Yeah, uh, exactly. So anyway, let's talk quickly before about other things, just to follow up on Robin and his uh, satanic black mass up there at Noosa. So the latest news is that the venue, well, the the police said that they didn't have an issue. They they didn't see a problem with his event and didn't see anything particularly unusual about it. But the event management said, we're going to have to charge you, Robin, for security guards. Mm. So um, uh, so that's a cost which he's going to have to pay for his satanic black mass that Hillsong doesn't have to pay. Exactly. And they hire the premises. Mm. So... You know, uh, this immediately brought to my mind the equivalent situation of Bettina Arndt, which mm-hmm. he was talking at Australia's university. University, yeah. And the local sort of young liberals or whatever wanted her there and the university said, well, if you're going to have her, you've got to hire security guards because the extra risk. And the Institute of Public Affairs was just uh, outraged, Scott, and basically, I've, I've looked at what they had said at the time. They said security fees create a heckler's veto. The charge empowers the people who disagree to organise the biggest, most aggressive and therefore costliest protest they can muster. The Liberal Club could ultimately be forced to cancel the event if security fees become too high. In the end, the censors win, free speech loses. Tell me how what's happening with Robin and the Jay at Noosa
1: Differs in any way to that. It doesn't differ in any way at all. It's just, you know, I can understand the venue wanting him to get security and that sort of stuff. However, if the Christians are genuine Christians, they should be there, they should be standing at the front very silently praying for the souls of the people who are inside mm. and they should be not raising any hell about it all.
0: Mm. So, yes, so that had um, that had me thinking about Robin. And the other thing about Robin that he might contemplate, Scott... Um, As you know, it's difficult for people to come into Australia. Mm. Only very special people are allowed in. Mm -hmm. The government has issued a series of um, criteria for special people who are allowed in, Um, people travelling at the invitation of the Australian government, uh, people providing critical or specialist medical services, um, people with critical skills required to maintain the supply of essential goods and services, a uh, Whole list there of super important people. In amongst the list,
1: people providing critical skills in religious or theology fields. <laughs> For God's sake. <laughs> so, so um, you know, has anyone noticed the country has not collapsed with the closure of churches? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> Australia has still managed to keep going without the churches every Saturday, every mm, Sunday. Mm, you know. Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm I'm trying to encourage Robin to. Um, call for um, somebody like Lucian Graves or someone like that.
1: Yes, to come over here to come over be, and yeah. <laughs> to provide critical
0: skills in in the theology of Satanism. Satanism, yes. and um, and try and get special you know permission from the government. And <laughs> why not just to test the boundaries? This is the whole point. Is um, are these freedoms and these privileges? Uh, for everybody or just for a select Christian group. it's so, for the Christians. Yeah. All right. That's enough uh, on Robin. He's got lots of things happening. If you're not following his Facebook feed, you should. <laughs> There's a great picture of him outside the Noosa Council meeting that he had with the Lord Mayor, so have a look at that. Right, Scott. Yes. We are terrible. Well, we had an image of a pregnant lady being handcuffed in her pyjamas uh, because she had... uh, on her Facebook, uh, encourage people to break the law in terms of attending a protest about Mm. the lockdown. Your thoughts on on the lady in the pyjamas?
1: I thought it was a little bit heavy-handed by the cops. I can understand them wanting to make sure that protests don't get out of hand and don't have protests because Victoria is in stage four lockdown, is it? I don't anyway. know what the number yeah. is, but
0: just severe, whatever it's it severe is. severe lockdown, yeah. you know,
1: and yeah. you, you've got this you got this point that even outdoor, you can't congregate in any more than five people in an outdoor setting. So one would assume that even a moderately organised demonstration, you get at least 100 or so people there. And I refuse to accept that you can adequately socially distance yourself when you're in a protest and all that mm. sort of thing. However... I did think it was just a little bit over the top, the way the cops charged into this woman's house and arrested her and handcuffed her, you know. Like a it was, squad. It was, yeah, absolutely.
0: Like, like, okay, you've got a law that says don't have protests and you necessarily don't have a law saying don't incite others to mm. break that law. But, you, well, you could just go in and just charge her and say, this is what you've done, you're charged. See you in court next week. Like the idea of having to handcuff her while they were assessing whether the situation was under control. For goodness sake, this isn't America. This We no, don't have guns everywhere. She was, it was the most domestic of was, situations you could possibly imagine. She
1: was in her PJs, yep. she was in her pajamas, and they handcuffed her. Yep. And she says, I've got a was it an ultrasound appointment or something yeah. like that? Yeah. She had to go and make, mm. and they didn't care. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with you. totally should, unnecessary. I think they should have gone in, they should have said, you've been charged with inciting this riot, with inciting this um, protest. Mm-hmm we'll see you in court next week. Mm. And that would have been the end
0: of it. There's a thing called a notice to appear. Yeah. So you can, you know, police can give people a notice to appear, which yeah. is appear at the magistrate's court at this day, at this time, and your matter will be dealt with. Mm. You're, you're charged with whatever offence it is. And, uh you know, well, okay, you can't really blame Dan Andrews for that. Like, he doesn't instruct the police, no, the police how were, to do their job.
1: The police were clearly Overstopping the marks.
0: Yeah. But he should have come out, I think, and have said, you know what, I don't think we need to handcuff pregnant w- women, women behind their back. Exactly. Just give them a charge and and make yeah. your way off and we'll deal with it as a civil society. Joe? Yeah. They did want to seize the phone
2: and laptop as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. And well, so, okay. So well, it
2: wasn't just a notice to
0: appear. They, they were actually okay, searching the house. Okay, take that, but... You know what are they going to do with that? In all seriousness, because they just just want to. It's her Facebook account. Is she going to say, "I didn't do it"? And they're going to what? What's the benefit? I've no idea. I can't imagine the benefit in actually taking her equipment. Yes, they've got all the proof they need. Unless she's going to claim somebody else hacked her account. Oh, actual- um, unless
2: they're trolling for other yeah.
1: information.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, if that's the case. co yeah, so but- organisers okay.
1: or... Okay, well, they, they could have taken her laptop away and then sort of said, we'll hand it back to you next week.
0: Yeah, you're, yeah, you're under arrest.
1: Where's your laptop? Thanks. Yeah, see you next week. We'll see you next week, yeah. But they didn't need to handcuff her. Yeah. Right? So. And had they have not handcuffed her, it probably wouldn't have made the news the way it did.
0: Uh, indeed. Mm-hmm. Of course. So um, So that was interesting. Yeah. Um, the other one now, of course, is Daniel Andrews has come out with his Victorian road, Victorian roadmap of different restrictions based on different scenarios depending on different numbers of infections at different times mm. and people are not happy, Scott. Well,
1: the people I'm hearing are not happy but then I'm yeah. listening to – I've subscribed to Sky News, so. Yeah, I know. Um, it's – I can understand Victorians not being happy. Now, you know, forgive my ignorance, but I have not gone through the Victorian roadmap, so mm-hmm. I don't know for certain what's in it. Mm. Other than I gather, it's fairly vague. It's, uh,
0: no, it's pretty specific it about is pretty specific, with a certain number of infections per week. Then yeah. these are businesses will be opened up, right, okay. and these ones will be allowed this number of people. So. I think it's quite specific. Okay, it's just fair that enough. people feel that it's uh, they were hoping for uh, easing of restrictions quicker than what he's,
1: yeah, and, um, and
0: he's he's kind of almost aiming for what seems to be an eradication, elimination type scenario. But um, obviously.
1: I think There's, he's probably
0: scared of another outbreak. He is, and he doesn't want to have to reopen. Exactly, three months. He, time. he wants to be able to uh, shut uh, it down of, and kill down the down bloody and virus
1: it. and be move on. Yeah. So, so I came
0: across an article just today. It was in the Guardian. It was by Josh, just Joshua Gans Gans, and he says that look, he actually is in support of trying to eliminate the coronavirus, and he's written a book about the best way of trying to eliminate it. So he's quite pro on trying to. Um, get rid of it. Um, so, um, Joe, I may not have put this in the notes because I put it in the last minute. But what he was saying is uh, Daniel Andrews is relying on on certain modelling from um, well, where did he get it from? Um, the model used by the Victorian government has been published in the Medical Journal of Australia. It's peer reviewed and yeah, you know, it's from a sort of a reliable source. But what he's saying is that there's different kinds of models. One is where you... um, Oh, let me just uh, quote it exactly here. So the model is an agent-based epidemiological model. That means that unlike standard SIR models, which use as inputs the number of susceptible, infected and recovered individuals and explicitly lists equations to describe behaviour in information flows. So instead of that, this one is a computer simulation based on the interaction of agents. And they run a simulation over and over again as agents randomly run into each other. And the simulation observes how the pandemic progresses. So this guy says that can be useful but it has a critical assumption, and that is that agents spread the virus by interacting with neighbours, um, but that um, the geographical distribution of those agents is pretty smooth. So it's a, a model that basically assumes a homogeneous movement of, of infection throughout a pool or an area, and he's saying that that's not really how people move and that's not how the virus moves. It tends to clump in groups and people move about in, in their neighbourhoods and in their clumps and they're not moving all over Melbourne in the same way that the simulation really mm. replicates. Mm. So he's saying that really the problem with the model is it's treating the whole of Melbourne as a... Uh, um, all the same and not recognizing the clumping of people's movements and the clumping of infections. And then in other countries, I think he might have been living in Canada or somewhere like that. They look more at postcodes and they, they will divide a city up north, south, east, west or whatever and say, okay, we've got a, more of a problem in the north. You guys are under this level lockdown, less of a problem in the south. You've got an easier lockdown. And um. So I thought that was interesting, yeah. and I wouldn't like to. I wouldn't like to beat Daniel Andrews. That's no, just, I think he's got a prick of a job.
1: You know, it's yeah. um. It, you almost uh, want to hand it over to the opposition and just say, "Well, you think mm. you can do a better job? Go for it." You know? Yeah. It's he's um. I think the only mistake he made was handing over the whole hotel quarantine to private security guards. You know, now that mm. was clearly a cock up mm. um, and there was an article you had posted a couple of weeks ago to us that said that had they have had the police involved then every security guard would have felt like a deputized copper and you wouldn't have had the same level of intransience from the um, from those who were in quarantine they would have stayed put they would have shut up and they would have they would have calmed down yeah you know and I don't think we would have had so the outbreak he made a mistake there he made a mistake there. yeah he got you know. unlucky so Yeah, I think, and Queensland got lucky, lucky, for
0: example. Absolutely, we We have far less sort of international people coming back here, things like Mm. that. So he got unlucky, but um, boy, oh boy! uh, We'll talk more a bit about it later. But on Sky News and Murdoch, they are relentless in their attack on him. Just relentless, Um, as his mind is, or whatever. You'd have to sort of shield him from it because it would just grind you down if you are aware of just how much they're going for him. And, and I honestly... It would grind you down, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he's having to... You know, this is the problem with the world is uh, there's no concrete definitive answers on this and you say, oh, I rely on the science, and there will be different scientific... Um, opinions. Opinions. And you, who knows which one's right? Well, he, he might have picked the wrong one, but he just got to do the best he can. Exactly. But be no... <laughs> No sympathy for him from lots of quarters if he picked the wrong one.
1: I mean, I still don't understand how Sweden can say that theirs is backed by science. Right. You know, but they had a very reputable bloke. I can't think what he's. I think he's an. What do you call it? Uh, No, it's gone. An epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. They're a dime a dozen. They're Uh, everywhere these guys. Yeah. But this guy was a very reputable epidemiologist and he came out and said, no, you want, the, you, want to, you want to sort of look after your old people and that sort of stuff, but you just allow the virus to take its course. Yeah, but it seems you can find an
0: epidemiologist or a Nobel Prize winning <laughs> can sort say of anything. medico yeah. of a sort of related close enough field mm. that would normally give you some confidence who will mm. say completely the opposite mm. of what another group is saying. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a very inexact science. It is a very inexact science, too. Mm.
0: I, I think it's an exact science when you
2: know the disease.
0: Right.
1: And this is a new we disease. It's a new disease. We don't know what it's going to do. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Good point. Mm. True.
0: So anyway, a bit more about uh, the Murdoch sort of um, beating on Daniel Andrews a bit later. <laughs> um, before we get to that, have you been hearing about this whole thing about um, – our major media groups like News Corp Mm. complaining about Google and Facebook using their news items and wanting compensation for that. And basically the ACCC has done a report on it and Josh Frydenberg has come out and is basically saying, well, Josh Frydenberg is saying, it's time for Google and Facebook to pay up to our content providers, i.e., Friedenberg's mates in the in the Murdoch empire. Hmm. So what's what goes on of course when you google or you're on Facebook is you'll see an article in a newspaper with a headline and maybe a snippet sort of a 25 30 word snippet about what the article is and um, what Murdoch is complaining is that people see that and then they don't bother clicking on it because they kind of get the gist of what the story is about and then they move on. <laughs> Say so we've provided this, you know, this information, and you guys are breaching copyright. But you are under the copyright laws allowed to provide a certain amount of reference to to work such as that without breaching copyright. You can't, you can't, um, you can't copy it verbatim and just replaster it on your own website. But you can certainly refer to a snippet of sorts is not a breach of copyright. Mm. And so um so anyway the C's looked at it and said oh probably good if they could have a bit of a meeting because there's basically a a power imbalance where uh these guys are just 1000 pound gorillas compared to poor old news corp. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, News Corp's a 2,000-pound gorilla. Yeah, <laughs>
0: but um, there's no – so News Corp wants them to pay mm. and um, and others like, um, yeah, traditional media here in Australia want them to pay something. There's no way Google or Facebook are going to pay a cent to our media and apparently in Spain the same problem occurred and Google and Facebook said, well, we're just not going to have you on our – on our platforms then. And did you well, hear
1: what happened after that?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: The existing media companies in Spain had a flood back of people buying the newspapers. Yeah. And all that sort of thing. Yep. And Google and Facebook weren't involved in handing out news or anything like that to the rest of the country.
0: It actually worked to the advantage of the, of the big, existing the big players. Of the existing
1: big players. Yes. A la Rupert Murdoch. Yeah.
0: But um you know, and the C is saying, oh, we really don't want a situation like that. We mm. don't want um, that to happen because we see it as a useful service for people to be able to see news snippets and things on these platforms. But um, personally, I don't want to see it. As much as I hate Google and Facebook <laughs> for not paying any tax at all, I hate Murdoch even more, the thought that they... Uh, so... Um, yeah, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if we get to the point where they actually just don't appear on in 12 months' time. Google and Facebook may not have any Australian news content appearing in the way that it does now. Yeah,
1: it wouldn't surprise me either. Mm. You know, it's um, I think it is probably designed to try and back up Rupert Murdoch's business model, mm. which is, you know, mm. dying yep. but still, and all it is still there. So. Mm. yep. So.
0: So, anyway, we'll see what happens with that one. Um, I guess while we're still on that, we might as well talk about um, about Sky News and and just and just the whole Murdoch empire. Honestly, Scott, watching this, um, watching these guys at work <laughs> on this Facebook page, it's, it's so much opinion based stuff. They've got Chris Kenny. They've got Credlin. They've got um, Alan Jones. They've got a whole bunch of these guys who are just giving opinion. They're not, and they are so rabid in their commentary. Like they, they're so over the top. Where where Daniel Andrews is a disgrace. He's a dictator. He should be removed from office. He's like they. The extreme language that they use to denigrate people on the
1: left—you
0: mm. just don't hear the left talking about the right in the same way. Mm-hmm. And when you go into the the comments section of of this as, as well, and just have a look around, like there's no way I'm about to make a comment because I just I, I can only take so much. But um, man, they are so hot in there, and. It really worries me, Scott. Like, to me, this is Fox. Fox, if you're looking at America today and you're seeing the riots, you're seeing the division in the country, you're it's seeing of Fox what News. it's come to, uh, Fox was a huge accelerant in mm. getting to that position um, and Rupert Murdoch. And, <laughs>
1: Rupert Murdoch was sitting on the sideline. Well, oh, Rupert Murdoch yeah. owns Fox News, doesn't he? Yeah, 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 he's
0: responsible for it. Exactly. And yeah. that sort of division... That they created over there, they're just working on right here. Mm. It's just, it just worries me that um, it's creating such a divisive sort of atmosphere. And and the thing what these guys do is they shift the boundaries of the Overton window. So what they do is they they are so hard, extreme, right in their views that. It then makes something slightly more central of that seem reasonable. Exactly. So the Overton window is – I've got a link to an article here that was talking about it. Um, You might have heard about it, dear listener. In March um, 2003 at a wedding reception in the Harvard Faculty Club, Lawrence W. Reed gave a toast in honour of the friend who he was serving as best man, one Joseph P. Overton. Overton had worked at Dow Chemical and had since become an executive at a free market small government think tank in central Michigan. Among his duties at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy he was raising money and in doing so he had made a brochure that would become his legacy. Overton was trying to describe the role of think tanks in a society and he posited an idea that would become a uh, country be called the Overton Window. In a given society, at a given moment, there is a range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream. Uh, A 70% top tax rate and a 20% top tax rate are both within this window in America today. Abolishing taxes is not. Generally, the theory went, politicians will only purpose ideas that fall within that window. It falls to think tanks and others to propose unpopular things outside of the window in the hope of shifting the window and making the previously unthinkable achievable. Sky News and a whole range of right-wing think tanks that that they get on there that they interview and that and that also appear on the ABC as part of panels are all involved in shifting this window so f- the, the right edge of that window, so far to the right that that anything slightly more central that
1: is acceptable, considered left wing, yeah, or, or just acceptable, yeah. it's not so crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that you're dead right on that, and um, you know, I even look at a, the case of a very good friend of mine who um, <coughs> may or may not be still <laughs> listening to the podcast, but he was um, when I first met him, he voted for the Democrats. And then he started voting for the LNP and now he's very much a real Sky News right winger. Mm. You know, he watches The Outsiders or something like yes, that on Sunday yeah, morning. Dean. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. really quite sad to see it happen actually. Yeah. Anyway, but- I, I just would love to be able to do something to him like that uh, guy that you talked about that his family turned off his access to right-wing media.
0: Yeah, while he was in hospital. Yeah. They um- – they, they unsubscribed delu- him from yeah. all these things and changed his password so he couldn't.
1: And he just yeah. evolved back into a decent human being. I would yes. love to do that to him. But yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just one of those things. But, uh, you
0: know, Paul's not here to defend himself. Hello, Paul, and you can defend yourself <laughs> next week. But Paul often posts things from Rowan Dean or The Spectator. And I just think to myself, would you post something from the Liberal Party? Like, uh, uh, would you post a Liberal Party press release. But but
2: conversely, Mm. um, this idea of Mm. anti-racism, which which I think is very extreme on the other side,
0: Mm.
2: is becoming mainstream now. Mm. Uh, And so I I think the window is being pulled in both directions. Mm. Uh, And what would be seen as very extreme views, this Mm. idea that if you're not actively anti-racist, you are a racist. Yes. But There is no grey. There's only black and
0: white. Yeah. And we're going to cancel you now. Well, exactly. The J.K. Rowling thing and all that. Yeah. Uh,
2: so yeah. so uh, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Yes. Uh, Fox News is having an anti-reaction as well. There, yes. There's the other side that is.
0: Yes. But, okay, here's the thing, though, is, is I think the extreme left is extreme. The left has gone extreme when it comes to identity politics. And uh, I on those issues of identity and uh, cultural appropriation and those sorts of things, they, they've gone. I agree with you. They've they've done the same thing. But when it comes to say just economics and tax and and economic arguments, I don't see the left doing anything like that. I see them being way too way too central and right-wing, if anything. You don't hear any um, support for socialism, if you like.
2: No, I mean, uh, the, the, the just... idea of a UBI certainly hasn't. Mm. I, I'm very surprised that mm. there hasn't been uh, a much bigger discussion whilst uh, a, a huge number of people are unemployed about how do we fa- fix... Um,
0: yep. So, so the, the left has given up the fight... On on the economic taxation and sort of social welfare argument, they 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 don't fight back against the sort of I, oh, I don't all think taxes the left are interested. No, they're not. And um, so but I agree with you about you know the the identity politics thing. So um, there was a thing recently with uh, just the other day where Paul Keating. Was um, um
1: yeah, that was it, very it, powerful, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so he, he was on really let them have it, didn't he?
0: So he was on Fran Kelly's um, yeah. program. am, yeah, and they were talking about the superannuation guarantee, mm. and he was saying it's due for an increase. Mm. Uh, it's that increase from nine, nine to nine and a half, half or,
1: nine and a half percent, yeah, going up to twelve yeah. percent.
0: Uh, it's been delayed over the years, and. Fran Kelly was pushing back at him and basically saying, Well, clearly we can't afford this. Um, And how can we do this in this economy? And she just kept pushing this line. And he just battered her away every time. Mm. Like he just, he basically just stood up for an idea and sold an idea. And really what he said was, Well, I introduced this superannuation, you know, after the worst recession we'd had in a long time, people said you can't do it. Economists then were saying we can't afford this and of course we could afford it. We did it and we can and that was in hard times back then. They'll always say now's not the appropriate time and and she made a point, for example, well, you know, uh, people won't get their wage rises if employers have to pay a superannuation rise and he said... They're
1: not getting wage rises anyway.
0: Like the the wage rises aren't happening. This is the only rise they'll actually get Hmm. is if you do a rise through superannuation. Hmm. So um, he talked about productivity and how much productivity has increased over the last 10 years. He had the facts and the figures and said all those productivity increases have gone gone straight
1: to the employers.
0: Straight in the hands of employers. Uh, Wages have been stagnant. Um, This is not a cyclical thing. You don't adjust your superannuation based on the cycle of the time. It's it's there for the long term. It's not meant to be something that fluctuates with the good and the bad times of Mm. the economy. Really, really good salesman. You know, I really miss Paul Keating, (laughs) actually.
1: (laughs) um, I didn't like him at the time because I was a card-grading Liberal Party member, but... You, you look back on him now and that sort of stuff and you think to yourself, yep, that's exactly the type of thing that you want a leader to be saying now. Yes. And he's, you know, he had um, some fairly unkind words about um, Albanese and um, Plibersek. I can't remember exactly what he said. But
0: well, this was the crikey piece that I sent you. In yeah. In the crikey piece it said um, basically what a great job Keating did yeah. and – the melancholy conclusion about Labor at the moment is that leaders like Albanese and Plibersek never bothered to get their head around the complexities of such to be able to sell it, and the economic burheads such as Jim Chalmers are so free-market oriented as to be almost as hostile to ideas of national development as the right. I think he's
1: right. I, yeah.
0: I, I get the impression they don't understand this stuff well enough to be able to sell it. I well, that's...
1: You know, the fact that they allowed us to rate our superannuation. Yeah. That is something that I think the government really should be taken apart for doing. Mm. You know, you can go in there and you can take 10 grand out. Yeah. Now.
0: But they shouldn't have had to. There mm. should have been enough welfare that exactly. people didn't so have you didn't to. Exactly, didn't have to do it. And it's just going to cause an enormous problem down the, down track. the track. It's exactly. just kicking a can down the road again. Um, In the chat room, thanks to everyone who's participating in there, Tony says, at what point does Sky News have to be rebranded as Sky Opinion? I think
1: at this point right now, Tony. um, Well, okay, Sky News News up until after dark is fine. You know, it is a very good news service, but after Mm. dark it ceases to be news and becomes opinion. Yeah, and on their Facebook page, all they do
0: is Is give you the the opinion opinion piece. And it's, yeah. So – I just want to cycle back to superannuation. Mm. So it appears that the, the Conservatives uh, <sighs> don't like the superannuation scheme, Scott. Mm. And do you know why? Well, why would they not like it?
1: Uh, because it's uh, another source of money that's not from the banks.
0: Yes. Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons. So that's one. Keating actually in the interview describes uh, some of the infrastructure projects in Sydney and saying that they're funded through the superannuation funds mm. rather than the banks mm. and that the banks aren't really able to fund that sort of thing. Mm. And so super funds are, are in competition with the banks to some extent or if not with them, then with international sort of groups and uh, the Liberal Party doesn't like that because they don't control these super funds because... A lot of the big ones are industry funds, mm. and they see them as being controlled by labor, mm. and so it's it's a labor-friendly group that wields financial power, and they are also often voting against sort of fossil fuel-type um, companies. So they're so they're moving their investments out of fossil fuel into renewables, and and that's another thing that. That, that the Liberal like. Party doesn't like. Yeah. yeah, so ordinarily you'd sort of think, why well, wouldn't the Liberal Party support superannuation? But um, there you go. That was the sort of um, reasons why, I think.
1: And thank you very much, Tony, for your appreciative uh, comment about me. Right. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so I truly appreciate the glove and his honesty about his historical positions and where he's changed his thoughts. Yes. Thank you, Tony. Yes, so... Glove, of course, was a card-carrying member of the Liberal Party.
0: I was. Yes. Right. Uh, I've chopped and changed over a few of my topics here, but uh, let's go back to um, I just want to mention um, my son is studying at the moment and one of his textbooks had this thing about Woolworths, just talking about, you know, big companies and the information they have. And um, so Woolworths, obviously can look at people's spending habits with their loyalty cards and their access to transactions, and um, and they started selling insurance. And so what they were doing was looking at the spending habits of the customers and using that to help determine the insurance risk of people. And what they found was that uh, the company's data analysis found an interesting correlation Customers who purchased relatively large quantities of red meat and milk had far fewer car accidents than customers who purchased relatively large quantities of rice and pasta. Uh, they purchased petrol at night and they drank spirits. So, um, so yeah, so so people who, who bought lots of rice and pasta and who bought petrol at night and drank spirits were a higher risk than people who um, who didn't. In fact, people who buy lots of red meat and milk were a low risk. Really? So they could then look at those customers and make higher offers to the higher risk and lower offers to the lower risk based really, on really? spending habits. This is the sort of big brother data yeah. that's lurking there.
2: There, there mm. is a story, I don't know how true it is, mm. of um, a, a family receiving some discount coupons for uh, nappies and another um, – young baby things, mm. uh, and it turns out that uh, the the teenage daughter was pregnant and they'd figured this out from spending habits.
0: Right, right. Be- before the family knew. Right, yeah. You know, when I was up at the Wind Sundays um, sailing on a friend's yacht, um, I don't know if it was coincidence, but there was obviously a couple of Facebook posts with us on, um, on, um, on a boat and um, – and I started in my Facebook feeds um, advertisements for boat shows and boat buying. <laughs> I thought, surely not. Surely they are they able to work out the photos of me are appearing with lots of water, and now I might be a boat, maybe. Well,
2: uh, but also um, potential lo- locations.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I was in the Whit Sundays location. Yeah, yep. He'd be up for a boat. Yeah. Let's start sending him some boat ads. Yep, it is scary, isn't it? So, anyway, that was from Zach. Thank you, Zach, and. um Oh, look we're going all over the shop back and forward here apologies uh, if that seems the case but I want to talk about um, it seems to be a trade-off about we have to get the economy going and yeah. we have to we have to unfortunately um, trade off health for economic benefits and we might have more people sick and dying from COVID, but but we need need that in order for our economy, we need to open up in order for our economy to bounce back. And I've got this article here from Our World in Data, which asks, um, is there a relationship between protecting both health and the economy in the pandemic? And I'll quote a bit here. Responses to the pandemic have often been framed in terms of striking a balance between protecting people's health and protecting the economy. There is an assumption that countries face a trade-off between those two objectives, but is this assumption true? A preliminary way of answering this question is to look at how the health and economic impacts of the pandemic compare in different countries so far. Have countries with lower death rates seen larger downturns in their economy, meaning closed sort of heavy shutdowns, does that lead to larger downturns in the economy? Comparing the COVID death rate with the latest GDP data, we see, in fact, the opposite. Countries that have managed to protect their population's health in the pandemic have generally also protected their economy too. So we've got a chart, and um, the first one shows... GDP decline in various countries, and this is worth looking at, dear listener, in the show notes if you get a chance. So it's looking at the percentage decline in GDP relative to the same quarter in 2019 adjusted for inflation. So somewhere like Taiwan is only down 0.6% for the quarter. Um, Somewhere like the United States, down 9.5% for the quarter. I think Australia—it's not on this list—but it was Australia. I think
1: it was Australia seven, down six or seven yeah, percent. Yeah, something
0: like that. Um, we've spoken previously about Sweden, so it announced it's down eight point three percent, and people said, "Well, you know, that's a good result compared to uh, the UK, for example." Um, 20%. Yeah, United Kingdom, 21.7%. Spain, 22%. And so people looked at the Swedish figure and said, oh, they're only down 8.3%. Uh, um, that's showing the benefits of having their economy, having their sort of, um, uh, not having a heavy shutdown, people being able to move about and, and trade has, has saved them from something like, United Kingdom or the Spain experience, and you can I have said, a huge shutdown. Well, yes, but this is what people say, um, and I said at the time, well, let's just com- try as much as possible to compare apples with apples. And when it comes to Sweden, I always like to compare it to ideally Finland and Norway and also Denmark. So Sweden was down eight point three percent, Denmark was down eight point five, Norway down five point three, and Finland down five point two. So countries which had stronger shutdowns had a better economic performance so um, people who argue that you must open up the economy or open up the freedom of people in order to save the economy have to look at these GDP figures and and try and explain what's going on there in some of these countries
1: I think that the closer the closer analysis is probably between Finland, Norway and Sweden because they're Mm. of that part of Europe. Yes. Whereas Denmark's down on the mainland of Europe. Correct. And, you know, there's probably a hell of a lot more cross-border traffic and all that sort of stuff going between Denmark and France or Denmark Mm. and Belgium. I agree. You know. And then if you want to compare places like Spain, they
0: rely on a lot of tourism tourism. and it's an economy based on that sort of thing, which and is quite when you,
1: different. And when you shut down that, then the economy is going to die in the ass. Yeah. Know?
0: So there's another chart as part of this article where they've basically got confirmed deaths um, on the y-axis and the GDP growth on the x-axis. And you can then see places like the United States and Sweden and United Kingdom and Italy and France having quite high death rates and um, and they're kind of in the top left of the graph rather than the bottom right, which is where you would want to be. So, um, so this is the thing. When people um, – well, I was at the coffee shop down at the cap here just yesterday, take my mother shopping and take her for a coffee and whatnot, and said to the guy, how's business? Are you close – to where you were last year, and he said, basically, we're back to normal within a a tiny margin of difference. But essentially, our business now is back to normal. So that's just a local cafe, light meals, coffee shop sort of thing.
2: I think actually the suburbs are doing a lot better than the city centres.
0: That's my point I was getting to, which is the CBD, because I deal with a lot of... uh, businesses in art shops, and those in a suburban location are going great. Those with an internet business are going fantastic. Those stuck in the CBD, not so good. So, um, so And that's going to happen even if you open up an economy because Queensland's basically under no restrictions essentially now, but the CBD is dead compared to what it used to be. And it's going to continue to be dead for a long time because people have worked out they could work from home and, exactly. and the offices are, are half empty. Hmm. And so there's just a number of businesses in the CBD, for example, which are crushed and it doesn't rely on the shutdowns happening or not happening. There's just been a change of human behaviour now that's going to occur in either case. So, So... So, in terms of Victoria opening up uh, from the lockdown, um, it's it's not. There's a lot of businesses that are still going to just be in enormous trouble. It's not going to solve their problems. More Absolutely,
1: there are. And you it. know, the better half he's uh, received instructions from his bosses and all that sort of stuff. That none of it's in writing because they don't want to uh, antagonise the union. Mm. But they are. Uh, Basically told now that they want fifty percent of them back in the office now. Right. So what they've done is they've gone through, and so he's playing the game with them and that sort of stuff. He rides his bike in from my place three days a week, one week and two days the next week. He's made his fifty percent. Right. So right. <laughs> in the fortnight. Right. So, okay. You know. Yeah. So, so um,
2: there, there have been a couple of articles about this. This is is not going to change. No, no, it's um, not going to change. They, gonna- they've, they've polled office workers. want to go back in the office, 20% want to work full-time from home, and 60% want to work two or three days a week in the office and the rest at home. People, historically, employers have been very, very loath to let people work from home. Mm. Uh, And I think because of this, uh, the employees are just going to say, well, it worked. Yeah, we've seen it work. Uh, I'll come in for whatever I need to.
0: Yes. Yep. And genuinely, people will see that people are productive in any event, like people get stuff done. So, um,
2: and, and yeah. you know, uh, just think of the, the traffic off the road, the mm. shorter commute times mm. for the days that you do go in. Mm. I mean, there, there, there is a huge knock on effect.
0: Mm. I just know myself with the car, I, I I just don't put as much petrol in it as I used to. It's, it seems to me quite a rare event to actually fill it up with petrol these days. Just I'm, I'm moving around less. So, yes, so that's all to take into account in terms of the economy and, um, Speaking of the economy still, um, uh, this is from The Australian. Um, Talking about the share market, people talk about the economy and and say, for example, people will say, oh, Trump's doing a great job. Just look at the economy. And what what they're talking about quite often is the share market. Mm. And, you know, until COVID came, the share market boomed under Trump. Um, during his period in office, no doubt about it, it went up. There's also, during the Obama years, it went up a similar amount, like it also boomed under Obama as well. So um, there's a, a real disconnect happening between the share market and, and the real economy. So this article says that, um, uh, talking about Apple, it issued a four-for-one split of the shares, and it was the fifth time they've done that since 1980. And after splitting the shares, the shares immediately added 3.4%. But there's no reason for this. Just cutting up the shares into four, if they were previously $100 and you owned one of them and you now own four of them at $25, that should not mean you owned four of them at $26.50 or whatever, just because they were split up. Um, Electric car manufacturer Tesla announced a five-for-one stock split in August. Um, The shares surged by 12%. According to this article, in the past 21 days, Tesla's share price is up by about 50%. And the only announcement of any note during that period was the stock split. And Tesla shares are up 577% since the March lows and Apple is up 140%. Dear listener, if you look at a chart I'll show you of the US Dow Jones, um, you can just see that it was on this incredible climb. It absolutely plummeted with um, the sort of COVID crisis back in around about March and pretty much has made up nearly all of that loss it's nearly back to where it was, but if you look at the the sort of fundamentals of the economy and how much widgets are going to be sold and how much services are going to be bought, it's clearly should be a negative outlook. The share market's just operating completely
1: the share in market- the opposite
0: of of
1: yeah, and, and I think you're right there, but. Um- The share market traditionally seems to be ahead of the economy. It appears Mm. to be a leading indicator. Mm. So what that's predicting there is a greater time ahead for the US economy. Yeah. I'm not convinced of that because Tesla still has not turned a profit, is my understanding. Is that right?
0: I think that's right. Yeah. I'm
1: not sure. And yet, you know, if you've had a position that they've gone up 12%, you know mm. that makes no sense whatsoever for a company that hasn't produced a profit. So
0: I think part of it is that that the index now is so dominated by those big big tech companies. Yeah, they clearly uh, Google and Apple and, and Microsoft and mm. all those guys. This is sort of good times for them as we all use the internet more than we ever have, I guess, mm. and are buying things more that way. So. And I think it just shows that that particular sector is strong and it's such a big percentage of the share market that it's it's sort of carrying the rest of the market with it. But um, in Australia, a similar thing. We've had a, quite a big bounce back from the dip that we had and we're kind of back to uh, early 2019 figures and... Just according to this article that I've linked to, um, he says, It seems the local market is not immune to the optimism surrounding loss making companies either. 63 companies in the All Ordinaries Index gained 20% or more this reporting season. But what Josh Clark from QVG Capital points out is that of the top 10 performing stocks in the All Ordinaries Index, none made any free cash flow for the period. Of the 20 best-performing stocks, only four made any free cash flow at all. Your argument, though, Scott, is that they look at the future and they say, well, they're about to.
1: So It's one of the because, theories. Because clearly I'm looking, looking into the future, yeah. the, the world's rosy. Exactly. That's the whole point. I, I'm i just repeating something that's been said to me before. I don't know whether or not it's true, but it's one of those things.
0: mm. I've previously talked about, of course, how Yanis Ferofakis mm. says that um, basically all this money that is injected into the system doesn't find its way into companies who actually produce things. It's it's just given to companies who do a share buyback and increase their share price. Exactly. You know, th- th- I think there's something there. Speaking of financial shenanigans, uh,
1: the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listener. That was Fucking crook, wasn't it? Dear
0: listener, we have a system where we look at the socioeconomic background of the parents in a school and we say that poor, poor families need more money to educate their kids than rich families. And there's good evidence to show that it's cheaper to educate rich kids than it is to educate poor kids. Just the way it works. So the government says if you go to school with a low socioeconomic clientele, we'll give you more money per head than than a, a rich school. And for most schools in Australia, the check is sent direct to the particular school. But we have a strange system where with the Catholics, instead of sending a check to each individual Catholic school, We send the cheque to the Catholic head office based on the aggregate of what it should be, and we trust them to dole out (laughs) the money to the individual schools according to the formula that we've provided the money. Is anybody out there shocked to learn that, in fact, the Catholics, instead of dividing it up, the way it was supposed to, in fact, took money off the poor schools and gave it to the rich schools. So really? The- oh, I'm stunned at that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought this was
2: a common knowledge a year or two ago.
0: Common knowledge, but the actual specifics came out. Somehow the APC got hold of documents and were able to piece together the numbers and work it all out. So we've actually been able to put numbers to it. And... Basically, the Catholic Church has diverted $300 million in public funding from the poor to the rich. Um, So there's a few different charts there and this article goes into it. They were doing it worse back in 2015. They've sort of modified and not doing as bad as they are as they were. But it's still over $20 million per year that they are diverting And what we've got is who are the winners and losers? So Broken Bay and Sydney. So this is to do with New South Wales. This is just New South Wales. So the inner city um, Sydney Catholic schools, let's think about it, who are competing against other wealthy private schools, and they've got to have the facilities. They've got to have the swimming pool. They've got to have the driving range, the, the pony club or, or, you know, whatever, the music hall, the other um, glitzy bits and pieces that you need in order to compete with um, for, the, uh, for the upper class Sydney clientele. And what do you do if you don't have the money? You rob it from schools in the Maitland, Newcastle area, Bathurst, Wollongong, Lismore, Armidale, Wagga Wagga, these regional Catholic schools. uh, They've taken the money that was supposed to go to them and sent it to inner-city Sydney.
1: Which is really crook. Hmm. It's really very wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um. Didn't one of our leaders raise that with them at some point and say, "Well, we can't keep doing this." Turnbull did. Turnbull did. Yeah, it's in his book. I thought it was. Yeah, and they just basically told him, "Well, it's the way things are done, Malcolm." You know, which is a load of garbage. Yes. Just, you know, it's it's bloody criminal, isn't it? They've got
0: no shame, these people. No, they don't. Mm. Uh so, so anyway, that's the Catholics up to uh, mischief again. Um, <laughs> what else have I got here that I've? Uh, so yeah, they're, they're kind of like the anti Robin, uh, anti sort of Robin Hoods, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Yeah.
1: Taking from the poor and giving to the rich, yeah. aren't
0: they? That's it. Thank you. Um, also, just um, Fiona Patton and school chaplains. This is yeah. good. So Fiona, of course, with the well formerly sex party, now reason party in Victoria. Um, she's put forward a bill. Now, dear listener, school chaplains, uh, the rule is that you cannot proselytise as a school chaplain. You can't promote your religion or your religious views. you got to keep religion out of it. But... What the various education departments do is they hire their chaplains from third-party providers like Scripture Union, and Scripture Union says, "Oh, you want a job as a school chaplain? Great! We've got the this relationship with the with the state government. We'll get you into a school. The state government pays us, and we'll pay you." By the way, I remember looking at the figures once, and it was something like the state government paid Scripture Union fifty dollars or fifty five, and Scripture Union paid the chaplain about fifteen. Yeah, mm. like they took most of the money. Poor mm. guys are earning nothing. Um, so, uh, so that's how it's set up. And Scripture Union and groups like that, when they're hiring these chaplains, say, "Oh, of course you've got to be Christian." Mm. <laughs> And, and this cannot be challenged under the uh, sort of normal discrimination laws, apparently. So what, um, what Fiona Patton has done is proposed a bill that says now that rather than going through these third parties when hiring chaplains, the education department has to hire them directly directly. And that will then mean that the hiring is subject to the normal Equal Opportunity Act and and things like that. So so there won't be a preference
1: for Christian. There won't be any relevance at all as mm. to
0: whether you're Christian or not. So, oh, Fiona, good luck. I hope, oh, gee, I hope that gets up. That'll be interesting to see what responses come from that. From but, the right-wing but, Christian
1: nutters. Yeah, yeah, but
0: that's a really... Elegant and simple solution. I like it. Is, yeah. oh, there's, a, there's an elegance about that in simply saying we're going to go direct, we're going to cut out this expensive middleman, and we're going to fix up a discrimination issue all in one go. I, mm. I, I, I like the way it's done. So, yes, so that's that. Um, what else have I got here? Uh, oh, Tony
1: Abbott, <laughs> Scott thoughts on Tony Abbott and tell the listener what he's doing. Uh, He's now been hired by the British government to be a British uh, trade envoy. So he's going to go out and he's going to work for the British government to get the best trade deal he possibly can for the United Kingdom, even though he used to be Australia's prime minister. You know, he was born in the UK and all that sort of thing, but he came over here, became naturalised, blah, 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 became prime minister He's still getting $300,000 on his government pension and he's going to turn around and uh, presumably work for the betterment of his new employer rather than his old employer.
0: Well, a trade agreement between the UK and Australia would require a lot of negotiation, Mm. a lot of trade-offs. Okay, we'll give you this, you give us that. We'll give you this or we want X percentage on this, percentage on this. You give us that, like, there's just a lot of wheeling and dealing. Absolutely. There are winners and losers. Mm -hmm. Our former Prime Minister
1: is a fucking traitor. He is, yeah. Because he's going to be arguing. He's going to be arguing for a different different government. He's not there for a fair deal for all. No. He's there for a good deal for the UK. That's
0: who he is. It's an adversarial process. Mm. And um,
2: the UK press, a lot of the MPs in the UK do not want him either. No, no,
0: with good
1: reason. So I just... I I thought Rex Patrick hit the nail right on the head mm. when he said that um, Labelled Abbott's appointment a disgrace and called the former Prime Minister to be forced to register as a foreign agent under Australia's Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. Absolutely he should be. Mm. He's a foreign agent. Yeah. you know, it, He seems to fit the bill because
0: I wasn't aware of this foreign influence transparency scheme. But essentially anyone who undertakes a registrable activity on behalf of a foreign principal, which um, is basically if you're doing a sort of a lobbying type role or a communications type role, on behalf of a foreign government where you are trying to influence a decision of an Australian government, then you need to register um, uh, as a foreign agent. And it would seem that Tony Abbott is doing exactly that.
1: He's probably hit the bill there. Yeah, although
0: I think you have to do it in Australia, so but as, as part of this role for sure
1: he's he'll going to be, be in australia over here, yeah. yeah he's not going to be doing it all from the uk i would have thought so it just it really grinds my gears mm. that you've got a position that i don't know if he's getting paid by the british government or not but no he's not it's he's some not. sort of yeah okay well
0: <laughs> free role
1: why right anyway um cuz australia's paying for it well, yeah, the, he doesn't need australia's to be paid cuz we're paying him we're, paying, we're paying him exactly. his his, his former parliamentary pension but you know it's what really pisses me off gentle listener is that you've got this situation that we really ought to have a 5 year point where you can't go out and work for the private sector that's right after you've left parliament yeah. if you've been in a cabinet position or, as he was, the chairman of the board of Cabinet, then I think that you ought to be barred from working for anyone for five years.
0: Anyone that has a contract with the government. Well... Or, or a lobby group for companies yeah, that have I a contract agree. with I the agree government. I agree wholeheartedly. So, yeah. so if, a, you know, if a, somebody from the National Party wants to go back onto their farm and run their yeah, cattle Yeah, then they farm, should be able to go and do that. Go ahead. And uh, if somebody wants to resign and go back to their fish and chip shop, you know, go. But if Mm. the company you're going to work for has a a business relationship with the government or the lobby group, lobbies for people wanting business relationships, it just shouldn't be allowed.
1: I agree. It's really, and, you know, because Abbott's going to have all the secrets in his head. He's Mm. going to understand exactly what we can afford to give up Mm. and how much we can afford to give up, Mm. and that'll be Britain's starting point. You know, it's really very criminal. He, he might also have intelligence from Asia.
0: Could have. You're right. You could access have access yeah. to secret information. Indeed. Good point. Anyway, on Sky News, uh, Peter Credlin said he's a great guy and and stop you whinging. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why she said that. I've said plenty about Peter Credlin in the past, and I won't continue yeah. boring people with it. Yeah.
0: So, um, so there we go, dear listener. I reckon, what are we up to? Ah, uh, that looks an like hour a, 10. yeah, an hour ten. That'll that's that's good. I think we'll probably wind up pretty quickly. Um, uh, I think next week. Now that we've sort of settled in with Joe here, I'm keen to so, sort of hear from people, um, over Zoom. So, we might call at the end next week at this sort of point. And if you've got something you want to say you've got an idea, um, we'll let the Zoom details out and you'll be able to call in and give us your thoughts. Not guaranteeing that you'll make it onto the actual audio podcast <laughs> because you need a certain level of interest and you've got to say something interesting and insightful in order to make it. So don't be offended if you get cut um, from the actual final podcast, but uh, you'll get on the live stream anyway, so... So we'll probably try and give that a bit of a try next week. So, um, so yeah, so that's uh, on the agenda. So, all right, Joe, thanks for controlling the tech stuff. Magnificent. Thank
1: you. That was good. My pleasure. Scott, thank you. No worries, Trevor. I'm here next week. We'll be here next week. Paul yeah. will be back as well. We'll talk mm-hmm. to you then. Thank you very much for listening. Bye now. Thanks. This is my first time at Davos, and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 1500- private yet uh, flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance. Right. And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on. it's We've got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion.
0: Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing